0: I love to see how uh, God uses his people and his gifts uh, throughout the world. Uh, I would not be a very effective church planter in England and yet God has his people. And Stuart Cashman we believe is one of those that uh, uh, God has raised up. He is uniquely prepared to uh, plant a church uh, there in Brentford, and uh, we are excited to uh, have him here today, not only introducing himself, but especially he's here uh, to share God's word with us. Stuart, blessings. Thank you very much, Dale, and thank you all very much. It is uh, a real pleasure to be here. I'm very grateful for the very warm welcome you've given me. It was wonderful to meet with some of the men yesterday morning. And to meet with some folks last night at the British Bulldog, what a great place to meet! Thank you, very much. Um, that was good. But also, I am so grateful for your partnership in the gospel. Uh, we could not do what the Lord is doing through us in Brentford without you. And just looking, looking down the list there the back of your, uh, the back page of your bulletin, uh, all those people you're supporting in the UK make a real difference um, to our own lives. I mean look at that list, David and Bethany Batusik are serving in IPC Ealing, where I'm currently associate minister. Um, Trace and Ginger you know about. Rob and Jenny Ilderton. It is a joy and privilege for Mariel, my wife and I, to work with Rob and Jenny. Uh, As a year ago, they arrived with us. We, we could not be planting this church without them. And so therefore, we couldn't be planting this church without you. And I am so grateful to the Lord that Rob and Jenny uh, now have an apartment in Brentford to move into in a few weeks' time on the 1st of June. Uh, that is a great answer to prayer. And that's possible because of your giving and your prayer and your love for them. So thank you for that. And uh, Chuck and Waima mean a lot to us in Ealing as well. Um, and it's great for me as a graduate of Covenant Seminary to have Michael and Michelle Davis now as part of IPC. There are too many Westminster graduates around, so it's good to... It's good to have them over. Uh, So thank you for that. It was uh, a joy for me to meet uh, Donna and Glenn back in September when they were over, and uh, I'm grateful to you for inviting me here. Well, enough of the thanks, sincere as they are, let's turn to God's Word. And today's reading is Acts chapter 16, verses 11 to 40, That's on pages 6 and 7 of your bulletin. If you have a Bible, I'm sure you can find it there in the New Testament. Let me read God's word to us. Starting in Acts chapter 16, verses 11 to 40. The the context is that Paul and Silas had been wanting to preach the gospel in various places in what is now modern day Turkey. But the Holy Spirit prevented them. They got to Troas, a port, and uh, the Lord gave Paul a vision of a man in Macedonia saying, coming to help it, please come over and help us. They concluded that was God's will, so we pick it up in verse 11. So, setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city for some days, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had gathered together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized and her household as well, she urged us, saying, if you have judged me to be a faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her own as much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, He put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly, there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately, all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open... Let them come themselves and take us out. The police reported these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them, and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So when they went out of the prison and visited Lydia, and when they'd seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray for God's help as we turn the the word together. Heavenly Father, we pray that you'll open our eyes, teach us wonderful things in your word, incline our heart to your testimonies. Give us undivided hearts that we may fear your name and satisfy us this morning with your unfailing love. For we ask it in the name of our Lord and Savior Jesus. Amen. I want to ask you a question this morning, what does it look like when the good news comes to town, when the word that can break chains, when it arrives in a community, what does it look like? What does it look like? I guess we could have all sorts of answers to that question, couldn't we? We can often think that the word taking root means lots of nice moral living. We can think it means that people change to become nicer people. We can think it looks like a whole lot of Christian activity. I wonder what you think it looks like in South Carolina. I know what I think it could look like in London. What do you think it looks like here in South Carolina, where there is already so much Christian activity, where so many people would profess faith in Jesus Christ? What does it look like when the Word of God truly comes in, the Word that breaks chains, what difference does it make? Well, that's what we're seeing here as we look at Acts chapter 16. Here we see the Word of God coming to Europe for the first time. And I want us to look at what difference it made in the city of Philippi. And I want us to see five things that happen as the Word of God comes to town. And the first thing we see is it break down, breaks down barriers. breaks down barriers. Look at the very start of that passage, verse 11. Paul and Silas, their usual missionary practice is to turn up in a city, go straight to the synagogue. Why do they go to the synagogue? Well, because it's a venue and it's an audience. It's a venue and it's a place where they can stand up and read the scriptures and proclaim that Jesus is the Christ. There is an audience there, people who are Jews or God-fearers who already believe in the God of Israel. So it's a good place to start. They turn up in Philippi, and for the first time, Luke is recorded, there is no synagogue for them to go to. So there's a barrier right there, isn't there? There isn't an obvious venue to preach. There isn't an obvious audience who are interested. So there's a cultural barrier right away. There's a a disinterest barrier, it seems, for the gospel. So what do they do? Well, they... They suppose there might be a place of prayer down by the river. You see that in verse 13? So they go there. Now, often in cities where there wasn't a synagogue, there would be a place where, if there were any Jewish people or God-fearers, they would gather by water. The water was useful for the ceremonial washings. So Paul and Silas uh, go to a place where they think there might be some interested people. Uh, They go there, and what do they do? Verse 13. We sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. See, right there, we see another cultural barrier. These are Jewish men, and they have to sit down and talk to these women. Something that culturally was not terribly acceptable. So they're crossing a cultural barrier straight away. Gentile, Jew, yeah, Jewish men would not associate with Gentile women. They didn't have people to come to them. They had to go out. They had to intentionally go and engage these women in conversation. Now, I wonder what the cultural barriers are for you here in in Irmo, in South Carolina. I don't know how it works for you, but I know what the barriers are I face in London, in Brentford. Race can be a barrier, but in London, that's, that's less of an issue. Socioeconomic class is a huge issue. So as we look to plant a church in Brentford, one, over one in four people live in social housing. On the other hand, we've got a whole load of new apartments being built, where if you want a three-bedroom apartment, the minimum you will pay for that in Brentford is, is about 800,000 pounds. No, Maybe a bit less, maybe 600,000 pounds. So about a million dollars. That's the minimum. And you go up to two and a half million pounds. So what's that, about four million dollars? Huge barriers there. The wealthy and the poor side by side. There are cultural barriers as well. The the school my children go to, 56 different languages are spoken. Only 65% have English as a first language as they turn up age four or five at the start of school. Cultural barriers, socioeconomic barriers, language barriers, they're all there. But you notice Paul and Silas and Luke who's with them are willing to cross those barriers Because the gospel is not chained by those barriers. It's not chained. And in fact, look how those barriers are overcome. Look at verse 14. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira. That's in modern-day Turkey. She was an economic migrant, to use current European terminology. She was a seller of purple goods. She had her own home. She was a wealthy woman selling luxury goods. She was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Can you picture this woman? She's a wealthy, well to do businesswoman. She's religious. That's why she's down by this, by this water praying anyway. But what she needed was not to be wealthy or polite or religious, she needed her heart opened to receive the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I'm sure we know lots of very nice-seeming people. They might be very religious. They might be very well-to-do and socially respectable. And yet, what's their fundamental crying need? They need their hearts opened, don't they? That the gospel come in. So here's the first thing we see when the gospel comes to town. We see barriers are broken down and overcome, including the barrier, ultimately, of a hard heart, as well as cultural and social barriers. We see a second thing as we look on at the next episode here. The second thing is not only a barrier is overcome, but as the word comes to town, opposition is stirred up. Opposition is stirred up. Look at um, verses 16 onwards. We see two types of opposition here. We first of all see satanic opposition, very obviously and deliberately, but then underneath that, and after that we see the more subtle societal opposition, still satanic in its origins, but it, It comes in a different form. So let's check out the story here. Look at verse 16. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her own as much gained by fortune teller. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the most high God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And she kept doing this for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, Turned and said to the spirit. Now, why do you think Paul was greatly annoyed? Why was he greatly annoyed? I mean, it, it could be it was just a frustration. For many days she followed him. Now that'd be pretty bugging, wouldn't it? If you had someone tra- trailing around after you saying that. But also it would disturb potential listeners. Who's going to try and gather and listen to Paul preaching the gospel when someone's there behind him shouting, This man is from the most high God? It'd be annoying, wouldn't it? But presumably also, Paul felt compassion for her. He could see what was happening. Here was a slave woman, the bottom of society, no rights, exploited by her owners, possessed by Satan. She was a hopeless case. So no doubt, Paul felt compassion for her, seeing the situation. But I think also he was greatly annoyed by the message that she was proclaiming. Now, as you hear that, these are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation, that can sound to us like it's, like it's true and a good news message. Why would Paul be upset by that? But actually, if you can think yourself back into the sandals of those first listeners in Macedonia, what she was saying was not actually a true message, but a distortion of the truth. To those first hearers, the Most High God was not the creator God of the Bible, was not the, the triune God the scriptures reveal to us, Father, Son, and Spirit. The most high God was Zeus. He was just one God among many in the Greek pantheon. And in the original language here, it doesn't actually say the way of salvation, it could be understood as a way of salvation. Do you see what's happening? Satan is opposing the gospel message by distorting it. So what, what Paul is trying to preach, this woman is distorting so that the people are listening and hearing something very different. Now I know that is true for us in Brentford. As we start to talk about Jesus as God for our Hindu and Sikh neighbors, they can just absorb him into this pantheon. as just another expression of, of the being that is out there. To... Tolerant, quotes, 21st century Westerners. Surely it's just a way of salvation. See, we need to be very clear. I wonder how this is here in South Carolina with a general religious atmosphere around. As we talk about God and salvation, when people are used to saying God bless America, where people are used to going to church occasionally, where people are used to kind of language of prayer and things like that, what do they hear when we talk about salvation? What categories are they putting those words into? I was talking to a friend of mine in Atlanta just on Friday. And he told me about a colleague of his who said to, said to my friend Donnie, Oh, I've got a big decision coming up. I need to go away and pray for the weekend. And Donnie said to me, I have no idea what that means for her. She is a, a first She's first generation born in the U.S., I think. So her family were a Muslim family, moved from the Middle East somewhere, settled in Atlanta. So she's grown up with notions of God informed by Islam, but also informed by the sort of general cultural milieu in the, here in the South. Donnie said, I have no idea what prayer means for her. I have no idea what God means for her. And Satan is very happy with that. As he distorts the message. So here we see a satanic opposition through his destroying the life of this woman by possessing her. Through his disturbing potential listeners with her crying out. And most fundamentally through his distorting of the message by saying something that sounds like the truth but actually does not communicate the truth. Now isn't that satanic opposition still alive and kicking today? It's certainly alive and kicking where I am, and I suspect it is here, because Satan is just wily and loves to get under our skin, doesn't he? He certainly distorts the message. He certainly distracts potential listeners. I think of a, a single mum, whose daughter is a friend of my daughter, who we hope and pray will come along to Emmanuel Church, Brentford. But anytime she shows any spiritual interest, her former partner shows back up on the scene and distracts her. But also, Satan still oppresses people spiritually today. And I think as 21st century Westerners, we tend to minimize that, don't we? At least we, we do in the UK. Let me give you a couple of examples from my own experience. In, in the, ch- the previous church I, I ministered in, in southwest London, we had a lady turn up who was actually a witch. She was heavily into the occult. She put curses on people and all sorts of stuff. She was gloriously converted but she came from a deeply dark, satanic place. Or just three weeks ago, we were having new windows put into our house. We live right under the pathway for uh, the flight path for Heathrow Airport. So the airport very generously uh, give us windows for our bedrooms, which is nice of them. Uh, They clearly want to expand the airport. But anyway, um, but the guys who came to fit the windows, one of them, uh, a guy called Jim in his late 50s, an ex-army man, very practical, down-to-earth kind of guy. When he found out I was a minister, he said, oh, can I... Can I ask you a couple of questions? So I made him a cup of tea. We're British. It was a cup of tea. It wasn't sweet. <laughs> so just, I'm just trying to make sure you understand what I'm saying. No distortion going on here. So I sat him down. He wanted to know how I'd become a minister. That was a kind of freaky thing for him. So I explained. And then he said, can I ask you something else? I'm like, yes, please do. And he told me about how two nights earlier his wife had been at a séance and how through a medium, a dead friend of hers had communicated to her uh, things that the medium lady could not have made up, things that nobody else knew. And he wanted to know what I made of that. And this was just after Easter. So I said, look, Jim, what you have said does not surprise me. It does not surprise me at all, because there, are, there is a spiritual reality out there. And it's not the Star Wars reality of a force with kind of good and dark, good and dark. It is the actual biblical reality of a holy God who is light, and an enemy who oppresses and destroys and deceives. But the glorious news of Easter is that God has come in person, in the person of Jesus Christ, died on the cross, defeating Satan, rose to new life to guarantee life and forgiveness and hope and light to all who will trust in him. But Jim, you need to be aware. That seance was real. Those dark powers are real. And Satan wants to oppose and oppress and destroy. But there is hope in Jesus. Now I wish I'd said it as articulately then as I have now. But you know what it's like? My point is, Satan still opposes God's message, and that includes in dark, satanic Spiritual ways. We must not minimize that. So you see what happens when the gospel comes to town? Well, cultural barriers are broken down. But opposition is stirred up. and We see it here first with that satanic opposition. But then it gets a bit more subtle, doesn't it? Look at verse 18. Well, Paul dries out the demons. As this kept on for many days, Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out of that, that hour. See, Jesus is alive. Paul speaks in his name because he is the king. He is the one with authority. It's like ambassadors today. The U.S. ambassador to London speaks in the name of the U.S. government with all the power and authority of your government behind him. So Paul as the apostle of Jesus Christ, speaks in the name of Jesus Christ with Christ's power and authority that dispels this demon. And yet that just stirs up further opposition, doesn't it? Look at verse 19. When the owners saw their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they're disturbing the city. Do you see the form the satanic opposition takes now? It takes the form of societal opposition. And how do these these slave owners whip up the crowd? Well, they can't tell the truth, can they? They can't say, look, we're not going to make so much profit. We're upset because our cash cow has just been destroyed. It's hitting our bottom line. So instead, they're, they're very clever, don't they? They whip up the crowd by pulling the good old levers of pride and prejudice. See the prejudice there? These men, these men are Jews. They're Jews. They're not one of us. And in Europe, we are so aware of anti-Semitism but also so aware of every other form of racism. And pride just lurks in our hearts, doesn't it? Prejudice just lurks in our hearts. There's not only the, the, the prejudice, it's also the pride. They appeal to the crowd's pride. Verse 21, they advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Roman citizens to, to accept or practice. Philippi was a fairly special city. It was a Roman colony. It had been reestablished about 42 BC um, by a victorious Roman general who'd populated it with army veterans. As a Roman colony, it had special tax status. And people were proud of being a Roman colony. So these slave owners are appealing to civic pride here. Now, I don't know what, Colombia is proud of. I, I don't know enough about your traditions. I'm sure you must do. But I can tell you what people in London are proud of. About every five minutes, the mayor tells us that London is the best city on earth. And it's a wonderful place because everyone's so tolerant. Look how many nations come to London. We're tolerant. We're not bigoted. We welcome all people. We're not judgmental. Now, you start preaching that Jesus Christ is the only way to God. You start preaching that if you're going to surrender to Christ, then that's going to change your ambitions. It's going to change your identity. It's going to change your sexual behavior. Then all of a sudden, that's very intolerant. That's not very London. We don't like that. And so you get societal opposition as prejudice and pride are stirred up against the gospel. And I'm sure that happens here as well. You'll just need to fill in the gaps yourself. What is it that Southerners are so proud of that actually is not compatible with the gospel of the Lord Jesus? It's easy to stir up a crowd against the gospel, isn't it? But what do we do when that happens? Do we retreat back into a holy huddle? Do we get grumpy about the opposition? Look, God, I've done the right thing. What? Why am I being opposed now? Well, look what Paul and Silas do. They're banged up in jail. They were beaten up first, banged up in jail, locked up in stocks in the central part. They are enemy number one of the state. And what do they do? Verse 25. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. I bet the other prisoners were listening to them. They probably wanted to go to sleep and there are these Jewish guys just singing away. And on one reason on one level, that's obvious why they were singing, isn't it? Or while, they were, while they weren't asleep, they were in pain. They were in stocks. They couldn't sleep at all, could they? And well, I guess we can feel why they're praying. I know what I'd be praying for if I was them. But here's a question. Why were they singing? Why were they singing? When do you normally sing? Well, I've heard the choir singing beautifully today. Let me tell you about people back home when they sing. When I went to Brentford Football Club to watch them play, when Brentford were 3-0 up by half-time, they were singing a lot. You sing when you're winning, don't you? You sing when you're winning. winning. Do Paul and Silas look like they're winning here? No, of course not. But they were not looking at what is seen, but what is unseen. Because they know Jesus is the king. They know they are on the winning side. They remembered the words of Jesus. Matthew chapter 5, verse 11. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you, not to all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets that were before you. So they're able to sing because they see the truth. They fix their eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary. What is unseen is eternal. So they sing when they're winning. Now, what do we look at? What do we look at? We're all naturally consumers by the culture we're in. We all long for comfort, don't we? We all long for life to be easy. And yet, when the gospel comes to town, it will stir up opposition. Anyone who wants to lead a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, our brothers and sisters in Syria and Iran and Iraq know that very well. Persecution takes different forms for us, doesn't it? It might be being ostracized at work, it might be just being used to being beaten up by a media that is more liberal. That's okay. We fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. When the gospel comes to town, it crosses barriers. When the gospel comes to town, it stirs up opposition, satanic opposition directly, but also societal opposition driven by Satan. But There's a third thing it does, and that is it rescues the helpless. And in case you're worried about the time, things speed up for the last three things. Okay, So hold in there. Hold on, hold on in there. But it, it rescues the helpless. Think about this poor jailer. His job, is to keep the prisoners in prison, okay? He was a slave, so if he failed to keep the prisoners in prison, he would be killed. Not just any old way, he would be crucified. He was not a Roman citizen, he was a slave. He would be crucified if anyone got out. Now, at the start of this story, he seems like a man, he's got it together. So verse 24, if you look at it, having received this order to to keep them safe and secure, he put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. They are going nowhere. Now, have you got a mental picture of this jailer? Can you imagine what he's like? I think he's a man's man, isn't he? Yeah, he's a pretty rough, tough guy. He's got to keep prisoners in order in the town jail. He is not a shrinking violet. He probably played high school football. He probably is out pressing weights every night. He's probably down in the, in the kind of bar that probably you wouldn't go to at drinking quite well with the lads. How can God bring a man like that to himself? How can God bring a toughened, independent, self-sufficient man to himself? I know lots of people like that. I suspect you do too. Well, I want you to see what God does here. Part of the reason Paul and Silas end up in jail is that the living God has got somebody else to save, and it's this jailer. What does it take to bring him to God? It takes an earthquake. It takes an earthquake. Just had that earthquake. Well, earthquakes in Ecuador and in Japan in the last few days. Shouldn't we pray the Lord will use those earthquakes to bring people to Him? See, this man was all self-sufficient until suddenly his life crumbled into ruins about him. And yet, you know, God is so compassionate. He will bring pain into people's lives so that they come to know him and know the joy and security that is only found in Christ. I think of a man who turned up at our old church about three years ago, about this time three years ago. And uh, <clears throat> he was, had a successful career in banking. He was a man in his early 40s. He hadn't been to church for about 15 years. But he came that Sunday because suddenly his life was in ruins. He was in the process of losing his job. He was in the process of going through disciplinary hearings about some potential misconduct, which, if that had gone against him, would have ended his career in financial services, which he'd been working in all his adult life. He was heavily in debt. He had no hope. It was only at that point, with his life in ruins about him, that he came back to church because he knew he needed help. Maybe... You're sitting here today, and maybe you're presenting to the world the sense that you are in control. And I don't know what it is, whether it's finances, whether it's work, whether it's health, whether it's family stress and problems, but maybe there's an earthquake happening in your life. And maybe you need to do what this jailer does. You see what he does there? Look down to verse 30. Then he brought, verse 29, the jailer called for lights, rushed in, trembling with fear. He fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said to them, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? You know, I don't think he was just worried about the death sentence at this point. What has happened in his life? He's He's heard he's got to keep these men under guard who are servants of the Most High God suddenly the earthquake happens and he has encountered the living God doing something supernatural. No wonder he falls down trembling. No wonder he realizes he needs to be saved. Yes, he needs to be saved from the death penalty. But yes, he needs to be saved from this awesome God who has just done something supernatural in his life. How does Paul answer him? He doesn't say go to church, does he? He doesn't say start being nice to people. He doesn't say, give up your tough ways. He says this, verse 31. Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your whole household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him. That is, the message about the Lord. And what is that message? That message is, dear Philippian jailer, you know you deserve to be crucified if any of us leave. Well, let me tell you, you deserve death before the holy God because of the way you have lived. But let me tell you about the Lord, Jesus Christ, God on earth, who came from all the glory of heaven to live in the dust and brokenness of this earth, to live the perfect life that you couldn't live, that I couldn't live, as a religious Pharisee. And yet, who died on a cross, who died the very death that the authorities will tell you you deserve to die, and rose to new life that you can be forgiven and saved. All you need to do is believe in that Lord. Well, that's a wonderful message, isn't it? And so he does believe. He and his whole household believed and are saved. See what happens when the gospel comes to town? Barriers are broken down. Opposition is stirred up. The hopeless and desperate are lifted up and saved. And fourthly, hearts are transformed. Look at what happens to this jailer. Verse 33 his heart's transformed, isn't he? And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. The man who'd let them be beaten up and imprisoned them in stocks, he washed their wounds and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he'd believed in God. See his transformed heart? He'd locked them up and now he's serving them. He'd been trembling on his knees, saying, what must I do to be saved, full of fear? And now he's rejoicing. See, here are the signs of a transformed heart. Joy and generosity. We'll look back through this whole chapter quickly. We see that time and time again, don't we? Look at Lydia. What happened to her when she believed? Joy and generosity. Look back at verse, six, verse 15. If you judge me to be a true believer, be f- to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. She said, I've received the generosity and grace of God. I'm enjoying it. I want to be generous to you. The jailer also, joy and generosity. Or look at the apostle Paul and Silas. Joy, as they sing in prison at night. Generosity. And We see the generosity in the next bit, really. Because Paul is generous to these Christians. let out of prison, he could just flee onto Thessalonica and forget them. But he doesn't. He gets these magistrates and says, look, you publicly humiliated us when you should not have done, so you can publicly escort us out of the jail. So the whole town gets to see we did not break any Roman law. So the whole town gets to see that actually Christianity and the gospel is not opposed to just government and just society. Why is Paul doing that? He is doing what he can to protect those, that new church, to protect those believers. And we see his generosity at the end in verse 40. And instead of heading out of town straight away, he first goes to Lydia and goes to the brothers and sisters who meet in her house and encouraged them and departed. See, what happens when the gospel comes to town? Hearts are transformed Joy, whatever the situation. Generosity, because of the generous grace of God. When the gospel comes to town, we don't get religious. When the gospel comes to town, we don't try and become nice, polite people. When the word that breaks chains affects our lives, it transforms our hearts. Joy and generosity. And very, very briefly, there is one other thing. That is, the church is built. The church is built. That's what we see in verse 40, isn't it? As Paul and Silas leave, there are brothers and sisters there. There's a church meeting in Lydia's house. It doesn't have a big, impressive building. It's meeting in Lydia's home. What is impressive about it is the diversity of it. On the one hand, you've got Lydia, the wealthy businesswoman. On the other hand, you've got the slave man, the jailer. The cultured, refined woman selling prestige goods. The hard slave man ruling the jail. Both brought together in the family of God. Both brought together as brother and sister through the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what happens when the gospel comes to town. Barriers are broken down. Opposition is stirred up. The desperate and hopeless found life and salvation. Hearts are transformed with generosity and joy. And the church of Jesus Christ is built up. That is a church that represents the diversity of the community which it's in. My prayer is that will be true for you guys here and for us at Emmanuel Church Brentford. Let's pray. (coughs) Gracious God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are able to do it abundantly more than all we could ever ask or imagine. We thank you that when Paul and Silas and Luke turned up in Philippi, they could not have known what you would do through to them. They could not have known the suffering that awaited them. They could not know the joy that you were going to bring. We thank you for establishing a church in Philippi. We thank you for bringing the gospel to Europe we thank you that all around the world this gospel is bearing fruit and growing. We pray that will be true here in St. Andrew's Presbyterian Church here. We pray it will be true of Emmanuel Church, Brentford. We pray it will be true in all the places where you send us and where you sent missionaries out from this church. Father, glorify your Son by building your church through the preaching of your word. And give us courage and faith and joy and generosity in Christ, we pray. In his name, amen.